You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. This episode was brought to you by Day, the gynae health research and development company raising the standards of female healthcare. Day is on a mission to bridge the gender gap in medical research and innovation, starting with period pains. Period pains affect 9 in 10 women in the UK, Day is the creator of the world's first clinically validated cramp-soothing CBD tampon, developed as a targeted solution for period cramps. People with periods deserve tampons that are safe for both your body and the environment, which is why Day tampons are fully sustainable, made with certified organic cotton and sanitised for safety to reduce the risk of TSS. You can get £5 towards your first box when you sign up for their flexible subscription service with the code SWS5. To learn more and to subscribe, visit their website, yourday.com. The focus of most conversations around the subject of sex and our sex lives are around partnered experiences. And so today, my guests and I are going to be talking about the relationship that we have with ourselves, solo pleasure, masturbation and self-pleasure. And I am thrilled that my guest for this conversation is the wonderful Daisy Buchanan, who describes herself as a self-pleasure enthusiast and is author of new book, Insatiable, which was described on its cover as a raucous unravelling of female desire and bodily pleasures in all their maddening complexity. I have read Insatiable and I can tell you it doesn't hold back. It unpacks ideas, narratives, expectations, the reality of masturbation, sexual fantasy and sexual exploration. So Daisy, I guess I wanted to kick the conversation off by asking why you think that it's important that we still have erotic content and pleasure exploration in our books. I think what's really interesting, what's really surprised me is people oddly feel much more comfortable with sex on a screen than on a page. Um, I think that even though it's not, you know, necessarily particularly graphic, we have seen a lot of sex on TV. TV's got a lot sexy. I loved um, Normal People, um, of course, Bridgerton. um, And even in, you know, I absolutely loved I May Destroy You and I thought that was so powerful and moving Mm. because what it did so brilliantly is um, it was a story about sexuality and a woman who is been through sexual trauma but also is still seeking sexual pleasure and so I think maybe books are hopefully catching up a little ways um I did think that um I also love the the book of normal people but I felt like I don't remember all the, the sex being in there but it's it's right there on the screen and I think that when you encounter sex in a book your imagination is doing so much work. I think that we're always looking for entry points. Um, I'm sorry, that's a horrible pun. Um, (laughs) To avoid that whole area. But we want to put ourselves in the story. I love sexy books. I love reading them. Growing up, I I sought them out and I invented my own sex scenes in the books that I read and I loved and I wanted sex scenes to be in them. In Emma, um, there's a part where... Frank Churchill gets a bit fresh and there's some notion of the idea that he made love to Emma in a horse-drawn carriage. Now, I realise that in the parlance of the day, in the, um, that century, make love 
simply means, oh, you look very beautiful tonight. That's a fine pair of gloves. It doesn't mean what we think it means. But when I was, <laughs> I don't know, 12, I was like, oh, then they'd love. I knew Dane Austin was dirty. Oh, so I really wanted to write a book that had that element of it. Um, there was some sort of fantasy that I loved Julie Cooper. I love Jackie Collins. And I think I love every fantasy aspect of that universe, the sex, but also um, everyone's in a beautiful house. People are in the middle of the world show jumping championships. They're staging a big boardroom takeover. Um, a lot of the erotica, it's maybe historical or there's lots that sort of within like the realms of sort of fantasy, either science fiction or, or magic. Um, lots of people that tickles their pickle all power to their elbow. Um, I'm delighted. I've got lots of friends who love that genre. Um, that is not for me. It's not something I enjoy and it's not something I connect with. And so I wanted to write about something that had elements of fantasy and reality, I suppose, where the sex, certainly in parts of Insatiable, the sex is fantastic. Everything almost goes a little bit too well. And as Violet... Mm the heroine learns more about these people and the more she, the more truth she finds and the more she kind of confronts the reality of her scenario, the less sexy the sex becomes. So I wanted a, re a an entry point that felt real and then the space for fantasy and fun and many, many orgasms. Mm, and I love what you say there about um, kind of books igniting our imagination because something that I've talked about is how our imagination is actually almost the best pornography we have because it is completely tailored to us. It's exactly how we want it to look. We can change it when we want. It's unique. And I think it's one of the things that happened um, when Fifty Shades of Grey got turned into a film. So many people were outraged because they were like, that's not what he looked like for me. You know, that's not what my Christian Grey looked like. And so with whether it's audio erotica or written erotica or, um, you know, we we can put, we can shape it to be visually appealing to us for exactly what we want. Definitely. And certainly when I'm fantasising, you know, and putting myself in there, I need to be in a headspace where I've almost I've made sense of my own body. Like in real life, in... I. Honestly, I don't watch a lot of porn. I have, you know, moments and periods of doing it. I tend to sort of find what's what's easiest and that has to tends to have a very sort of limited and specific aesthetic. It's the pandemic, Kate. I last saw a waxer in, I think, January 2019. There is a situation, not just, you know, the crotch is quite 70s, but also there's a sort of Mr. Tumness, like pube carpet from, you know, thigh down to knee. And I think there's a for some people that is very much their thing. Um, I love the idea that like every single thing, um, I don't, I'm not sure I believe in soulmates, but I believe everyone is someone else's fetish. Um, but I can do things in my fantasy, like just sort of not focus so much on that. Whereas, you know, I am, I'm a woman. I've been raised and socialised in a woman. I've been living in this Western world where every second I'm either tacitly or explicitly told to compare myself to another woman and work out what I'm lacking and work out what is wrong with me. When I'm fantasising, I don't have to do that. I can just run the show. Mm. And that was something that 
I love that you you've spoken about and is that this idea of self-pleasure and masturbation as a way of giving ourselves something in terms of our like self-care and kind of like a gift to self which is just for us which isn't exploited necessarily and it's this idea that we can play it into a a part of our self-care routines you know it's something that I often talk to people about in the context of getting to know their bodies and kind of self-sex education and learning what feels good for them and growing in confidence in their bodies but there is also the self-care side of it which is that our bodies are designed to experience pleasure and why can't we embrace that why should we be embarrassed about that and it's kind of a it's it's a bit of um, a split debate isn't it because on the one side we can see for example that sex toy sales have absolutely rocketed in lockdown and that's being widely reported and you know we we kind of understand I suppose hypothetically that there is lots of people are doing this and enjoying themselves and experiencing pleasure and that should be shame free but at the same time the narrative and the conversation hasn't quite caught up it's a really interesting idea and I think there are two sides to it I absolutely adore the notion of hyperlocal sex education that I think it's just getting away from the fact that there are certain things that your body can be coaxed to do. You you can you will never complete your body. There is no kind of challenge accepted. I will squirt. I will do this. That sex education has to be for us and only us. And we can go as slowly or as quickly as we want to. And it can look however we want and need it to look. I do have a... I mean, I... I love vibrators. Um, I've been really lucky in that various points in my life um, I've written features and things and I've got sent really nice vibrators. I do think there's a strong argument for spending money on something that is for you and only you. And I think women still struggle to sort of feel like it's okay to do that. I do also feel very strongly that there's a danger and there's always a danger with every single thing that can be monetized and made into a business of, of exploitation. I really don't want anyone to think that they need to spend tens or hundreds of pounds or more to start living their best sex life and getting the most out of their body. However, I wonder whether that in some way sort of legitimizes it, that we can't, we're not quite there yet in terms of talking about masturbation and yearning and desire and fantasy and the rawness of it and the messiness of it but if you know the guardian and the evening standard can have their like 10 best budget vibrators roundup and it's it's starting something it's normalizing something and you're like well if other people are spending money on a bit of kit and also if I've spent money on a bit of kit then I should probably have a go at this. And it's that, you know, because it's quite lonely, I think. We're just in no way now. We It's ironic because I was going to say we're not used to spending any time on our own. I mean, for some people, that is all this last year has been. But we're never really mm. alone, are we? We're hyper-connected through an array of screens and various things. And it's, again, I think the biggest self-care aspect isn't, just feeling good and either whether you, that leads to an orgasm or not it's being really happy spending time by yourself and not needing validation or 
I don't know. I, I think we, we're really conditioned to believe that we should always be either giving something out or responding to some criticism or it's really important to have community but I think that we value that community so much more we can really love and honour ourselves and ourselves alone and act just for ourselves. Mm, And I think that is why I wanted to have an episode around the topic of solo sex you know masturbation self-pleasure whatever whatever name we want to give it because I think it it's a thread that goes through lots of the conversations that I have, at least, you know, on this podcast and, you know, in my work. But it doesn't feel like it's ever kind of explicitly the topic of the conversation. And I know um, it's something that you're obviously having conversations about in relation to the book, because, you know, for me, um, I was actually talking to someone about this yesterday, how one of the opening scenes or, you know, opening chapters is she's in the loo at work, masturbating to some messages that she's exchanged with someone on tinder and that's this idea and I know I shared a scene um with you that I'd watched on a um tv series which was quite quite of a similar thread and it's that idea that it's not kind of like overly romanticized it's just actually those those messages are turning me on and I'm going to do something about that. And that's what Violet is is doing. In the and so much of that as well is it's not the messages alone. It's what's suggested. It's what's hinted at. It's what she turns them into. Um, I have really adored and been so impressed by I Hate Susie and that one particular episode. And I think this feels radical where, um, I was going to say I've forgotten the main character's name. Susie, of course. <laughs> Susie is masturbating to all of these different scenarios and but she's not quite able to orgasm because she keeps interrupting herself Mm. because she thinks I I remember there's one in particular where she's fantasizing about a school run dad um and she's all done up like a sort of you know 50s Hollywood siren and they're having sex in the car and I love that because for her I think she was fantasizing the character was fantasizing about being objectified you know in reality having sex with someone's dad in a playground in a car would be I imagine if I were to to go and do that today in (laughs) which I wouldn't do for various reasons but I think it would feel uncomfortable and kind of the act Mm. isn't squalid and it might be really loving and tender, but I think I could just imagine, you know, it'd be cold, there'd be gear sticks and crisp packets and whatever digging in. And it's that, <laughs> that she was so freed by the idea, because I think that's the thing, when we are, another really complicated thing that I, I struggle with, as a feminist, I'm like, no one gets to objectify me, I am all powerful, I am a woman and I'm owning my business. As a woman who is really insecure and did not feel at all desirable ever growing up. And I've spoken to lots of friends and anecdotally, I know this is not uncommon. My God, to be a sex object, when you have been made to feel like the kind of the opposite of a sex object, like to be wholly desired and wanted and lusted over for your body and nothing else. Um, you know, when you have been told that your body is absolutely not desirable. I mean, that's a... That's something that, you know, as a fantasy, I adore. In reality, no, I think it would be, it's not something anybody would would want or, I think maybe for some people, I don't want to 
assume anything about it. It's always dangerous, isn't it, when you talk about, you know, but I, I think that's it. There's, with sex, we are so hung up on, like, on shoulds. And certainly, mm-hmm. I don't think we make enough of the fact that fantasy is kind of should-free. Um, I know, I was just thinking about your episode with Justin Lee Miller, which I thought was fantastic, and that he talked, I thought, really boldly and well about the people who do explore their fantasies and make them real, and also that there's a real danger and you have to address the fact that not all fantasies are safe or suitable for for real mm. life. Um, and I think that there is a danger as well if you, you do need to live in the world. You can't, you know, fantasy can be addictive, yeah. but you can't live in that space all the time. And that's sexually, that's in terms of any of your dreams for like your home, your career, your family, your love life. I think we are so used to being observed now and we are so willing to put ourselves up for observation we forget that that private space certainly personally that is where I I nourish myself I get very stressed and anxious and overwhelmed and burned out by just the demands of being a a person on the internet as we all are now and a Mm. person who does anything in public and I always I judge myself before anyone judges me and you know I'm a a writer I need my imagination I need to let that breathe as Mm. soon as I start that pre-judgment I just ruin everything for everyone and myself and I can't write and fantasy allows me to reclaim my creativity Mm. and I I love that I love that it's kind of um it's like escaping into imagination Mm. isn't it and I think that I think that I love what you said about the word should because for me anyone who has listened to my podcast or worked with me will be like stop saying this we've heard you say it a million times before um, but should is a banned word in my therapy room and I you know when it comes up I would say but who said should why should we why should I why do you think that you should where did that message come from and breaking down those shoulds I think plays a big part in psychosexual therapy so that idea of that encroaching even on our exploration when we are on our own with no one else to consider apart from ourselves is in itself, I suppose, an indication of how we need to protect that space or allow ourselves or give ourselves permission to have that time, that space. And that kind of links to self-pleasure, doesn't it? And a large part of what I think a lot of people struggle with and it does feel like we're it does feel we're making the changes and it does feel we're getting there it does feel like with you know books like yours and articles and I do think there was that kind of whole you know 50 shades kind of bomb that went off that really kind of pressed fast forward on a lot of conversations as well was I shouldn't be doing this or I should feel guilt or I should feel shame for doing this whereas actually I think people who feel confident and that they're experiencing pleasure and then they are enjoying a sexual relationship with themselves actually report that that has a really positive impact on lots of facets of their life, whether it's stress relief, whether it's just that relationship with themselves, whether it's self-confidence, whether it's the impact on sexual experiences with another person. And I think that there is also 
a lot of women I work with, for example, say, well, I've never masturbated or I've never done that or that's not for me or I just never tried it. And there's also a feeling of like a shame or embarrassment or a silliness about that because it, it's kind of a, I, I don't know, I've got an image of like a seesaw in my head. It's kind of like we're on one side or the other. And how do people just work it out? You know, how can we just be like, okay, well, I'm going to work out what's good for me. I'm going to work out what works for me, what I enjoy. I'm not feeling we need to prescribe to someone else's way of, way of doing it. There's so much to unlearn. And I really do appreciate and understand. I am a woman, I'm very, you know, I'm mobile. I don't have any chronic conditions or health issues to contend with. Um, I don't have children. I am self-employed. I am in a very sort of stable and relaxed marriage where I have all of the time and headspace in the world and I still struggle. And I started masturbating when I was really, really young, just sort of instinctively, I think. Um, Mm. And possibly because I was uh, raised in a very strict Catholic family and there were lots of oblique references around me to sin and shame and sex. And it was never sort of fully spoken of or explained. But I think I maybe intuited like, oh, well, that sounds like something I should look into. So I had that a real (laughs) curiosity, I think, very, very, very early on. If for all kinds of reasons, you don't have that urge, then I, I don't want anyone listening to think, oh my God, self-care, I've got to do, I've got to double cleanse my face and I've got to try an ice bath and I've got to do my meditation and now I've got to spend half an hour giving myself an orgasm and I don't have time to have sex with anyone else and why do I want to have sex with myself? It's really, I I think we all really, really feel like we are just so up against it and I think there's lots of oversubscribed as well. I know that we mentioned before, you know, this like the orgasm gap, all we see in culture. And it's tricky. It's something that I have been, and I keep thinking about this, that I've been um, criticised about is in Insatiable, Violet, the main character, reaches orgasm with great speed. Now, my novelistic defence or my editorial defence is, yes, that's that's how sex works in in the books I love that was deliberate I wanted to make it fun to read I don't think we can really have 20 pages of Violet not quite orgasming or you know he touched the space beside her clitoris for some time while she awkwardly tried to work out how to say that's not the one um but I think it is really you know my experience of reading is different we do see not just in porn all so much mainstream sex is like penetration, billowing curtains, people going, oh, and it's all, it's all wonderful. Um, I recorded a my podcast, uh, Daisy's Insatiable, with um, the poet Holly McNish. He's so brilliant and bold about all aspects of sexuality. Mm. We talked about masturbation for some time. And she was talking about how as a, a single parent with a partner that she doesn't live with, when you know, sometimes the father of her child is taking care of their child and she has the house to herself. And her revelation has been masturbating and it being about 
taking the time that, you know, I think like lots of us, and we all start having sex, we think, oh my God, I need to have an orgasm now if it's not happening within minutes, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with me. And actually, as you say, it really comes back to that sex education and just finding what feels good. You know, like yoga, that's uh, something I was very, 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 very late to. Like yoga, because exercise isn't supposed to hurt and make you cry. Um, I mean, crow pose will always <laughs> make me weep. I'm never going to do that. But it can be just, a, you know, a lovely, a lovely forward fold. And, you know, mm. I, I think that we need to... I quite often just like stroke myself as self-soothing, you know, not in a, you know, let's have an orgasm. In the same way, I think that I've spoken to people who say that with their partner, intimacy can be an issue because sometimes they just want to cuddle and the idea that it might immediately lead to sex makes them anxious. Yes, goal-orientated. And like your your self-touch doesn't have to be goal-orientated. I sometimes just give myself a bit of a cuddle and it feels really nice. And I think Mm. we need that now more than ever. Mm. And I think that, as you said that, like it has to go somewhere. I think when it comes to pleasure or when it comes to just that even kind of sense of sensuality you know one of the the biggest pillars of sexuality is sensuality is we can have that without it having to be even explicitly sexual and it can just be that um skin on skin whether it's on our own or with someone else just for the sake of being like okay I'm just going to give myself a minute here as you said soothing we often talk about Um, self-soothing I suppose like how do we self-soothe and that idea of a hug is one of the most basic ways we know of doing that if you think about with a parenting if a child falls over and is crying what's the first thing you do you pick them up and you give them a hug because that sense of comfort that comes with that but we don't offer ourselves the the same we don't offer ourselves the same empathy, I suppose, sometimes. It's so true. And I think we, it's all about unlearning this business of of being with ourselves. So I have struggled all my life with binge eating and with eating disorders. And, you know, that's something that comes up a lot in Insatiable too, that Violet, my heroine, feels like her appetites are completely out of control. And you know, the premise of the book being she has broken up with her fiancé. She's really, really unhappy and lost and feels as though everyone wants this life for her that she doesn't want and she's rejected that, but she feels as though that means she has to reject them as well. And she falls in with this sort of very libertine, open-minded, wild group. And that kind of came from a fantasy of my own where I've often felt that, you know, my sexual destiny and lots of the things that I, you know, would dream of trying but would never try it, sort of thinking, well, you know, if the opportunity was offered, a lot like, you know, people doing that awful thing of, you know, going out and being like, well, I I don't want to want pudding, but if everyone else gets pudding, I will get pudding, I suppose. Um, But Violet, there are points in the book where she binges she feels as though she cannot trust herself around food and that her even though she's you know I like to think a very intelligent character you know I'm very very fond of her Mm. but she doesn't have a relationship with food as a nourishing thing she believes she's got to constantly police herself and 
to mm. starve herself. And that's an act of her trying to just pay attention and try to like fight something that she's ashamed of. And then every so often she just, she gives in and she can't control it. And certainly with my own binge eating, when I've done that and honestly, I don't, I, I don't ever want to say I'm over it. I think it's something that I've got to live with, but I've worked so, so hard on my mental health. And I started doing that work, um, it was towards the very end of 2018. And I just got to a point where I thought, I can't live like this. I can't keep lurching from diet to diet. I can't be miserable and out of control. And I can't pretend that it's balanced to starve myself all day and then have pizza and wine and a vast bar of chocolate in the evening. And I don't feel happy in my body and I don't feel in control of my body. And I realised that a lot of the time, I thought I was eating because I was miserable, but what I was doing was eating because I was just so scared of feeling anything. And eating mm. took me out of my body because my body didn't feel like a safe place to be. And I had to make my body a space that I did not want to escape from. And everything from masturbation to hugging to touching just put me back in my body. I was talking to my therapist the other day about starting the morning with a cold shower and, you know, the the endorphin blast and the, the fact that, you know, the science is sketchy. You know, we're not sure that works or not. Um, we're not sure if Wim Hof is a, a, a genius or, or very much not a genius. Um, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a cautious fan. But I was saying that what I love about it is freezing, freezing cold. It's not, it's always a bit of a shock. I don't exactly look forward to it, but it makes me feel feel it puts me in my body and it reminds me I don't want to mm. escape anymore and I love that it's that kind of like shock factor isn't it and I think you know thinking about how people use masturbation or um self kind of pleasure you know I, I think it's always interesting to think how people use it because again I think this is part of the conversation is about people being in their bodies is I often talk to people who say, oh, I only use it as stress relief or it's like scratching an itch. You know, it's, um, you know, like I have that feeling, I have that desire, I feel the need for a release. And, you know, I'm talking about female masturbation here and I almost disassociate. I do it and then it's done. And it's not a act of anything apart from scratching that itch. And then I have other people who are trying to learn about their bodies and self-educate or are using guided um, audio exercises or apps like Furly and they're trying to discover what they want. Other people who are trying to learn how to, for example, orgasm or um, are working on themselves in a more kind of pleasure-focused way. And then other people who, it's like a gift to themselves. It's something for themselves, something they enjoy, something they feel they deserve and they give themselves the time and the space for it. And some people who say, oh, I just do it every night before I go to sleep. It's just my routine. So it's also, I think, a big part of this conversation is about saying, finding what works for you also in terms of how, not just, you know, the practicalities of what you're doing or how you're touching yourself or if you're using a sex toy or not, but what does it offer you? And a bit like the motivations that we have for partnered sexual experiences 
there isn't just one. <laughs> I love that. I think that's really great. I'm a huge fan of the behavioural expert, Sheru Izaji, who talks about um, binge eating and in her books, especially The Last Diet, and she wrote a brilliant book called The Kindest Method. Um, and what she says is just any habit that, you know, whether it's a good habit, habits, to have a habit is not inherently good or bad. Habits have different effects and sort of impact your life in different ways. But Every single thing offers you something. And the best way to start, whether it's dropping a habit or changing a habit or starting a new habit, is thinking, well, what do you want out of it? What's its function? What will it offer you? And quite often we just think, you know, no, I'm going to stop doing it or, you know, I'm going to make myself run every morning or whatever it is. And we don't really go beyond to think about the result of the ritual. I mean, I think that masturbation is mm. the world's most underrated sleep aid. I, If I try any, like a, a herbal pill or anything, I feel really hungover the next day and I sort of crash into furniture. Whereas, you know, quite often that that is what I do. If I wake up in the night and I can't get back to sleep, I, I give myself an orgasm. And I suppose I'm very aware of people who are, are maybe maybe new to masturbating or maybe anxious about the the result but it's you know I think it's really heartening to hear that lots of people you know it's it's a routine thing and it's functional and I think that's it that maybe as a conversation it's a it's a taboo but there are plenty of women who are going about their lives and and getting on with it and making it a treat I mean I find as well that if um Mm as a freelancer it's a good alternative to a nap I think it's Catelyn Moran who christened it the the freelancers lie down like you know there's the uh, you know <laughs> three four o'clock in the afternoon after about three o'clock I become entirely useless really my brain doesn't work and the sort of if I spend an hour or two refreshing my emails and refreshing Twitter I just feel dreadful I feel drained I feel uh, the only way I can describe it is it's spiritually as though I've been queuing outside a petrol station for hours in the grey, <laughs> driving rain, and they've run out of, uh, I don't know, Haribo's hours. Who um And then, again, it's, it's nourishing and replenishing. You know, an orgasm feels so good. It's one of the few things that I can do that just gets me out of my head and doesn't just sort of distract me Mm. from everything else that's bothering me but just moves me away from it it gives me perspective it's like you know I'm zooming out on myself and the you know for for a time the things that I'm so worried about don't matter Mm. almost like it's almost a bit like clicking at the refresh button isn't it and Nan Wise (laughs) and Nan Wise describes it as a peak pleasure experience but a body and brain Mm. experience and I think you know, the, the benefits of not just orgasm, but touch and pleasure are neurochemical releases in the brain, which, for example, have functions like making us feel closer to the person we're with or, you know, perhaps with ourselves or, you know, relaxation, impact on cortisol levels and aid sleep. So we do know there are also neurochemical benefits um, to this. But I think that I suppose it's what why do you think that we need to be having these conversations because I think what we've historically seen and again this is something that comes up I suppose 
not just in my therapy room, but in conversations time and time again. And I can remember it even being the, the narrative, boys or men masturbate. And it's kind of commonly talked about and just always there and just always known. But it being something that kind of, at least um, when I was at school, like young teenage girls kind of pretended that they didn't do, but everyone was doing. And it was kind of like uh, a joke that, or kind of normalised that all the guys were at it, but something that the kind of women shouldn't be doing or the girls shouldn't be doing at least to the same degree and that kind of playground whether we talk about it as playground banter or you know earlier conversations can be quite impressionable on us how we think and how we feel about sex and our sexual experiences and we can kind of carry a lot of that stuff with us and we're in such an interesting time in terms of sexual wellness and sexual well-being and it being you know, a big topic. I'm not saying it means that people still don't raise their eyebrows when I tell them what I do for a job, but that why why do we think that female pleasure has taken a bit of a backseat? And are we nearly there in that changing? I will never forget having a conversation with my friend. I think we were both 15 or 16 and we were talking about a classmate, a mutual friend. We were bitching and the friend I was speaking with said something like, you know, don't tell anyone, but, you know, I, I do, but I'd only ever do it, like, over my pants. I'd never actually, you know, get in there. And then she said, Caroline does it, like, properly. Like, ew, ew, imagine touching your own body. Oh, my God. I can't even, and I was, obviously, I was, you know, frequently getting stuck in, and I did the, oh, oh, how <laughs> awful. Yes, you know, it's fine over the knickers. But... <laughs> and I, I believe that even now, a sexual woman is a dangerous woman. I think that even the sexually liberated women we see all around us, like, you know, I loved um, WAP and I think, you know, Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion and, you know, Ariana Grande are doing such great things. But in there, and I think there are lots of those women in the mainstream who are, feel I really, I sincerely hope they feel empowered by what they're doing. Having seen that Britney documentary, I'm not so sure. But the what we are shown as being a very sexually confident and empowered woman is also the most desirable woman a heterosexual man could possibly want. You know, it's still the sort of the messiness of female desire is mm. really not something we see and I think that as women we're so so vulnerable I've, I've really felt it with you know with insatiable coming out you know like am I I'm not sure I'm I'm sexy enough to have written a sexy book like to be a woman and say I am horny and lust-filled and DTF and I want everything um and, mm. you know, we will we be permitted to have that? We're not permitted to have many things. You know, it's in the workplace, you know, back to eating, all of our appetites. It's like, well, if you're good and perfect and you've got big tits and boys like you, then you, you might have some stuff. But other than that, we're, we're holding it back. And so, you know, that's the, I think, still now, the hardest thing for women is, and I, I think this is, slowly 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 getting a little bit better a little bit broader but it really is fairly slow progress to say that you desire we, we don't even even when when beautiful women say they're beautiful and desirable we don't like it we get very upset we've sold women a pup we're like 
we need you to be confident. We need to take you, you to take responsibility. But as soon as you start actually being confident, as soon as we see you liking yourself, we're like, mm, it's a trap, it's a trick. You can't have that. Mm. And so I, I think that's maybe what's happening. Like we're all, you know, hopefully, I truly hope we're all bringing ourselves to orgasm on a nightly or weekly basis and having a lovely time. But to say, I like to get my giddy up is to say, and I, I think I'm, I think I'm hot. It's like, um, I always think of poor Kira Knightley in Love Actually in her, what does she say? Um, oh, I look quite pretty, don't I? And a million people are like, oh, you cow, you can't say that about yourself, even when it's Kira actual Knightley. And that's, <laughs> that we are not the, we're never allowed to be the gatekeepers and we can secretly be the gatekeepers mm. of our own sexuality and own it and revel in it, but... It's really, really hard to do that beyond closed doors. Mm. And it's that assumed sexuality, isn't it, that um, we kind of do without even thinking about it. So as you said, like the way that someone... The, the reality is we cannot tell anything about someone's sexuality just by looking at them. We will never know what's going on in their heads. We'll never know what is in someone's sexual imagination. And what turns them on unless they explicitly tell us but we have this assumption based on how someone appears about I think the the kind of sex <gasps> they might have or the sexual person that they are did you ever read are and... you there god it's me margaret by Judy bloom and <laughs> laura her classmate laura has boobs and no one else has boobs and they're all convinced what if she goes behind the a and p with these boys i found out that the a and p is a small supermarket i believe like a cost cutter and i was like What's the A and P? Is that a sex thing? That sounds like, oh, um, like going down to the levee in American Pie. But right at the end, we learn that Laura is a, a Catholic and she's never been with any boy and her beauty and her big breasts are just a curse and they make her miserable and everyone just projects the sexuality on her. I love Judy Bloom mm. so much. I still read Judy Bloom. I just remember all of the, the covers of those books and everything. Um but yeah, there is that, like, is that, that's like those perfect, it's a perfect example of those assumptions, isn't it? Um, and I think that, you know, maybe, and maybe what we're saying as a part of this conversation is that actually solo sex lives can offer people, and I mean people here, I don't just mean women, an opportunity to reclaim all of that just for them. And I know, um, there is research in the US that was done quite a while ago where they showed participants different types of pornography. So I think it was um, different sex couples having sex, same sex couples having sex, and then bonobo monkeys having sex. And they measured the responses of people based on, so using um, for women a plethysmograph, which is basically like a kind of glass dildo that measures blood flow. And what they actually saw was that there was a difference between the physical response, so the kind of objective measure of blood flow, of arousal, and the subjective response, which was that people's bodies, you know, women's bodies were responding to all the different types of pornography, including the monkeys, but reporting more the ones which they thought they were meant to find arousing. And... I think, again, that, that's back to that sense of 
well, this is what I should like, or this is what I should masturbate to, or this is what I should use as a um, inspiration for pleasure. And there's, again, I mean, this is a whole different conversation in itself. We've seen this whole rise of female-focused or female-led or female-created platforms, which are trying to create, I suppose, different types of pornography. We're seeing audio erotica, new kind of platforms and apps and websites kind of um, popping up all the time. And I guess it feels like maybe people are starting to explore a lot more because these things don't come up if there isn't a need or there isn't a want or there isn't a demand for them. Oh, and what's interesting about now, as you know, I'm there sort of decrying the modern age, um, there are so <laughs> many more ways for us to have an intimate relationship with sexuality and this breadth of sexual stimulus. There are so many more places for creators to create and for us to access it. You know, we can't we we might not want to sit down with our family and watch a sexy show for all kinds of reasons. And I know lots of people who are locked mm. down with their families and um like, oh yeah, so so Bridgerton so is watching good. Bridgerton oh, is absolutely right, more okay. to- <laughs> But you know, the idea of the technology we have and, you know, the audio stimulus and I wonder as well whether this growth in audio it's so exciting because pornography you know and I it's tricky isn't it because I think that whenever we have a conversation with pornography we're like oh there's a sort of moral decline you know like pornography is bad for all of course there's it of course it's bad of course some of it is bad because some of everything is bad there are ways of doing it and also Mm -hmm. I'd never thought about this but a lot of the really anything that is that is shocking to see that is quite harmful to women or difficult to digest and deal with the reason that proliferates is because you've got people that oh my god like you have to look at this his whole head went in or you'll never like they introduced a wolf you know it's the real it's clickbait it's sexy clickbait um and the you know fairly tender simple something that is you know quite arousing but maybe more subtle and relatable and enjoyable to watch that doesn't get that shock factor audience and so I think that audio perhaps for women especially and I don't think I think that you know back to the bonobos I've certainly been really turned on by porn in the past I know lots of people do but it's that sense that we are we go in, I think, feeling excluded and we're told the social social message we get is that's not for us. Audio is new mm. and audio feels a little softer and more accessible and we get to kind of feel our way in and we're not being presented with the limitations of an image. We've still got that space to fantasise and dream and put ourselves mm. in the picture. And I think the the kind of Bonobo's thing was um, about kind of examining, I suppose, you know, physical arousal, but it's something, I think it's Emily Nagoski that says... Not everything that is um, sexually arousing is necessarily sexually relevant. She definitely didn't say it. She she said it in a much more coherent and clean and better way than um, I just did. But in a nutshell, that's what she said. Um, And I think that is a big part of this as well as about like finding what works for us. And I suppose 
a part of it is giving ourselves permission to explore and not and also understanding the fluidity of it that actually we someone might feel really turned on by something and then they try it again they're like mm, it's not doing what it did for me this time like how do I how do we I, I think there's something around that openness to explore and the the variety that can also be brought into solo sex lives that is an important thing to mention because I think there are also ideas that okay well we find a way that works and that's what we just do and repeat and repeat and repeat and you know the representations I think we often see of masturbation for example on screen are a bit like that they don't show the the range or the breadth of the fact that someone can be turned on by numerous things or one thing one day or one thing another and um I think that that's also like a part of normalizing this conversation and I loved what you said to me I'm not an expert I'm an enthusiast <laughs> and I guess I I would love I suppose maybe that to be a bit of what people take away from this conversation is to feel open and free to explore this side of your sexuality on your own terms I really really hope so and I think it comes back to that idea that sex education is for us and it's lifelong and it's not mm-hmm. it's not binary it's not straightforward there are not things to know to be to really revel I suppose in in our differences and our and it's it's like having a happy secret I think about your own body and your relationship with that and it's taken me a a long time to get to that point and it doesn't always feel as happy as I'd like it to be the the secret but yeah I think we do get so hung up on on the should on this idea Mm. that it's us versus this sort of huge perfect gang of everyone else who just knows what they're doing and presses the right things and, and gets there and never thinks about anything a little bit, you know, weird or or untoward. But we're all, you know, freaks and and deviants and we all feel awkward and self-conscious and anxious. And the gorgeous trick of masturbation is we can make all of that work to us, work for us, and that becomes an asset and not a liability. Mm, I love that. Um, well I mean what a point to finish on (laughs) and Daisy we've got Insatiable is out and there is a podcast as well and you've been interviewing some amazing people recently Um, but tell people where they what what do I suppose actually I'd love you to tell people what they can expect from Insatiable and um, what those conversations that you're having with different people about these topics can offer because I feel like this episode is almost just a taster of some of the conversations that you're you're having on your own platform. Insatiable the novel is subtitled A Love Story for Greedy Girls and it is about all of our appetites about being a young woman trying desperately to find one's place in the world and getting at that point when you will take anything that's offered to you and you feel like you're on the brink of something, but also you feel lost and you are trying to find direction and find your path. And it's all of that with lots of sex and lots of orgies and a sort of slow 
the sexual reckoning, there are also lots and lots and lots of jokes in it. Um, and I wrote it having read, as I said, masses of uh, Julie Cooper and Jackie Collins and Shirley Conran. And I hope that if you you like those books that you will enjoy this and it does it does have a happy ending if I can make you laugh or make you feel uplifted or make you feel horny I've done my job Daisy is insatiable is the accompanying podcast um I have interviewed Dolly Alderton Paul Mendez Shirazadi Andy Osho um Holly McNish and I think our we're coming up to our last episode in the series with Holly Bourne um and all of these people, again, it's it's two enthusiasts, not experts, having a very loose conversation about being a sexual person in the world. Paul Mendez, who wrote Rainbow Milk, is especially fascinating because he has... I loved that episode. Oh, thank you so much for listening. Paul has been a sex worker. He's a writer now, but he... The book is... It's a novel, but it's quite autobiographical. He grew up in a very strict Jehovah's Witness family, ran away to London when he was 17. And it's kind of about identity that, you know, the the racism he experienced as a black man, the homophobia he experienced as a queer man, and how he, as a, a sex worker, that's not something that he felt ever ashamed about. Or, you know, he did, there, were, there were points when he was very vulnerable, there were points when he was exploited, but he chose to do that job because he reveled in the sexual connection that he had with his clients and kind of at points got off on the risk of it and Rainbow Milk is a a fantastic book and I strongly recommend that. Um, Dolly is great and she talked about you know desire and power and taking back I suppose you know the idea of promiscuity and you know being a single woman and and also the way things change from, you know, writing about dating and love and, and your life and making sure that you come out of that experience, feeling those experiences still belong to you. Um, really excited about the coming mm. episode with Holly Bourne because her latest novel, which I love so much, uh, Pretending, it's all about trying to find sexual empowerment after an experience of abuse and trauma and Holly has done lots of work with girls and young women who have experienced sexual trauma and abuse and the sort of coming through it and yeah about how how we can be sexual people in the world where our sexuality can also make us very very vulnerable so I think all of the conversations are really different and I love them because they're quite raw and quite messy no one is no one really has any facts for me no one is saying this is how it is it's a real conversation Mm. about how sex it's something we all experience uniquely and I know that sounds so obvious but I think we forget that no I think we really do and I love you know I love that you've used the word messy because sex is messy but we seem to spend so much time trying to work out how to make it tidy um and it's just it is round my place certainly (laughs) really let things go in the pandemic (laughs) it's just one of the big ironies isn't it well daisy thank you so much um do guys check out the book check out the podcast i can really really recommend all and Daisy, thank you for having this conversation with me i knew as soon as we spoke that you were going to be a great person to have it with and yeah, I think, I hope everyone feels inspired to to explore. Kate, thank you. It has been a pleasure in every sense. Mm-hmm.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.